Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Hello, Journey. As you can tell, I am not Pastor John. <laughs> he planned on being here today, but unfortunately, he is not feeling well. I spoke with him last night, and he said it was okay for me to tell you that he has COVID. And uh, he's feeling better every day. He expects to make a full recovery, but he certainly does covet your prayers, so continue to pray for Pastor John. If you're new to Journey, or if this is your first time with us, I want to let you know that we're in a message series called Viewers Choice Awards, where Pastor John is preaching his top four most viewed sermons on YouTube. Today, he was going to deliver a message that he did back in February 2014 called Widowed and Healing. And to date, this message has been viewed more than 30,000 times on YouTube and has over 80 comments. One woman recently commented on that video and said this, I lost my husband 11 years ago. No one can understand such pain if they haven't traveled the same road. When he died, I felt a part of me died as well. But God is good. He helped me through all of it. I may not understand his plans, but I decided to trust him no matter what. Thank you, Pastor John, for a great message. May you continue to be an inspiration and an encouragement to people. So the good thing is that Pastor John has preached all these messages before, and we have them on file. <laughs> so in his absence, we thought the best thing to do would be to watch Pastor John deliver his original message from February 23rd, 2014, called Widowed and Healing. Well, the late ABC uh, radio news broadcaster, Paul Harvey, uh, once told the story of a woman who went to her local newspaper to report the death of her husband. And she took a glowing four-page description of her beloved deceased to the obituary counter. And upon seeing it, the news clerk reviewed it, and he said, ma'am, this is very nice, but I think I should tell you that it costs 50 cents a word to put that in the paper. Stunned, the wife took it back, and she wrote, rewrote it simply to say, Sam Brown dies. <laughs> and the clerk said, ma'am, I'm sorry, but there's a seven-word minimum. And so she took it back, and she counted on her fingers, and she said, Sam Brown dies, pickup truck for sale. <laughs> As I thought through the topics for this series of messages that we've been doing in the month of February, I, I, I thought that I wanted to do a, a special message to wrap it up today for a group of people that I think we tend to overlook in the contemporary church, and that is widows and widowers. That lighthearted story about the widow selling her deceased husband's pickup truck helps us understand two things very quickly. Number one, obviously, grief does not go away that quickly. The loss of a spouse through death is one of the most painful experiences that anyone can encounter in life, and I'm aware that even talking about it can reopen some wounds. This is a very heavy topic for many people. 
But the second reason we need to talk about this relevant topic is there does come a time to move on to the next chapter of life. Somewhere in between the humorous quick fix of the widow in Paul Harvey's story and the person who for years who cannot bring themselves to go on with their life, there needs to be an equilibrium of emotion. There needs to be a balance of healthy, normal grief, and then a re-engagement with life. I think that's what God wants for us. The writer of Ecclesiastes put it like this, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. I hope this message will help us realistically deal with the grief that will inevitably come to every life and to reaffirm our trust in God to get us through it. The the textbook case of a person who experienced overwhelming grief in the Bible is a man named Job. Perhaps no one before or since has had more reason to mourn than did he. Yet the book of Job not only recounts the shocking reality of his extensive losses, but the surprising recovery of multiple blessings that God provided for his next chapter of life. Job experienced a series of unprecedented calamities. The opening chapter of the Old Testament book that bears his name relates a blow-by-blow series of staggering losses. It begins with the loss of his wealth and assets. Job was a very wealthy man. We're told in verse 3 of chapter 1 that he owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. And someone calculated the value of the volume of animals that he owned at a livestock exchange in today's market value, and his livestock alone would be worth over six million dollars. Job was a very wealthy man, particularly in that time. But in a matter of hours, he lost it all. His oxen were stolen, fire consumed all his sheep, rustlers raided his camels, and all of his servants were killed trying to protect the livestock. This happened in a day when there was no good neighbor state farm agent to call, no good hands people at Allstate, no farmers, no Farm Bureau, and certainly no FEMA to assist or to replace what he'd lost. Job went from the penthouse to the poorhouse in a matter of hours. Grief is an emotion we can experience when we lose something of great value to us. We certainly mourn whenever we lose people we love, but we can also grieve, albeit to a much lesser extent, when we lose possessions, when we lose a position, or when we have a broken relationship, and certainly through a divorce. I've had people tell me, who've had to move away for whatever reason uh, from a church family that they really loved and they bonded with, and they had to look for another fellowship of believers in a new city to replace the old one, and they just can't seem to do it. And for a period of time, they mourn the loss of their old church. Job lost his possessions, but then he lost something that was so much more precious to him. He lost his children, and not just one of them. That would be heart-wrenching enough. He lost all of his children at one time. Verse 2 of chapter 1 tells us that Job had seven sons 
and three daughters. And then in verse 18, we read, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. You know, if somebody dies slowly from a terminal disease, there's an opportunity to express love and say goodbye. But when someone dies unexpectedly or in an accident or in a sudden disaster like what is recorded here or maybe a, a heart attack, there is such shock and you feel cheated. There are things you wanted to say. You may think that their death is somehow your fault because you didn't warn them or you weren't there to protect them or to help them. We're told that Job often prayed for his children. And you have to wonder after this happened, if, if he worried afterwards, perhaps he didn't pray for them that day, or perhaps he didn't pray long enough, or maybe he should have warned them about the bad weather conditions, any number of things he probably blamed himself for and wish he could do differently. The loss of a child is, is something that no parent quite gets over, even though you do learn to move on. My first funeral, when I was a young pastor, was an ideal funeral, if there is such a thing. She was an 85-year-old widow named Elizabeth King. She was in failing health. She was not going to get any better. She was depressed about being alone, and she was ready to go be with the Lord. That was the first funeral I had to do. But my next funeral was one of the worst tragedies you could imagine. A two-year-old boy from a small village of Claysville, Kentucky, where I pastored my first church, chased some ducks down into a pond. He was wearing cowboy boots. His boots got stuck in the mud. He struggled to get free. He fell into the pond. He hit his head on a rock, and he drowned. I was out of town at a Christian camp. It was during the summer, and I got a call from one of the elders in the church that I needed to go see this family immediately. I was 18 years old, and I was scared to death. I didn't know what in the world I was going to say to this grieving mom and dad, but somehow the Lord got me through it. And afterward, as the family walked by the casket for the last time, I will never forget that mother reaching into that casket, picking up the body of her dead son in her arms and wailing, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. You know, some images you'll never erase from your mind. But Job didn't just lose one child. He lost ten all at once. You can hardly imagine the sense of grief he and his wife must have felt. But then, in addition to the loss of his children and his wealth, Job lost his health. Job chapter 2 verse 7 says, He was afflicted with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. That sounds like the worst case of shingles in history. Throughout the rest of the book, you understand what a devastating experience his loss of health was to him. Job 2.12 says that his body was so disfigured by this disease that his friends, when they come to see him later, they don't even recognize him. Chapter 7, verse 4 says he has recurring nightmares. Chapter 30, verse 28 says scales formed over the oozing sores and became black. We're told he experienced constant pain and fever. It's not uncommon for 
a person enduring intense grief to have health problems, insomnia, exhaustion, headaches, loss or increase of appetite, anxiety, declining interest in sex, depression, recurring dreams about the deceased are very common. In his book, Facing Death and the Life After, Billy Graham wrote, after a personal loss, people think that nothing looks the same. Food loses its flavor. Music seems hollow. Nothing satisfies. Tears come at strange times, often for no apparent reason. The bereaved person may see someone walking down the street that looks like the person who died, and pain comes without warning. People have told me how they went to call a loved one who had died to tell them something. And just before they pick up the phone, they remember they're not there anymore. You see, when someone has been such a part of your life, it sometimes takes months for the reality to sink in that they're gone. Job went through some intense grief. But then, on top of that, he got some poor counsel from some people who were close to him. First of all, listen to the advice he got from his wife in Job chapter 2, verse 9. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Not exactly what you would call comforting words from your spouse. Would you agree? But before we get too critical of Mrs. Job, let's remember that she too was really hurting. She'd lost everything Job lost except for her health. She'd been rich. Now she was poor. She had ten children, and the nest was not just empty. It was decimated. She had a healthy, productive, respected husband, and now it appeared he was going to need constant care for the rest of his life. She couldn't understand why a loving God would let such a tragedy happen to such a good man. She was bitter, and she said what many bitter people say, just curse God if there is one and get it over with. Job replied to her in verse 10 of chapter 2, you're talking like a foolish woman. Should we accept good from God and not trouble? Let me add a side note here. Statistics show a very high divorce rate among couples who have experienced extreme tragedy in their marriage, like the loss of a child. At first, a tragedy like that will drive a couple into each other's arms, but over time, it can become a wedge, and it can drive them apart because they're emotionally distraught, and their mate is emotionally distraught, and they can sometimes start to blame each other. And emotions can vacillate rapidly, and they quickly get out of tune with each other. It's imperative if a tragedy like that strikes your marriage, you hold on to each other, try to communicate, worship together. And trust God to bring you through it. Those who've done extensive studies on the grieving process relate that it's normal to experience a cycle of emotions. Now, now these are not laws. These are just kind of principles and observations that have been made clinically through the years. So if you've had a loss and you say, I didn't go through that stage or I went through that stage earlier, that's okay. But let me just review some of the cycle of emotions. First, there's shock. You are stunned at the news at first. You don't know how to react. It all seems so unreal. Then there's denial. This is not real. This isn't happening. I'm going to wake up and this will all be over. If they're going to walk through that door any moment, I'm going to get a phone call any moment. 
And then comes anger. And I think this is obviously the stage where Job's wife was. There's often a bitterness directed towards God for not preventing it from happening. There may even be anger expressed toward the deceased. A widow who may not be able to get the car started one day suddenly pounds on the steering wheel, angry at her husband for leaving her in such a mess. Then there's depression. You experience times of sadness that drags on for months. One day you're restless, another day you're apathetic. One day you think you're doing okay, the next day you're overcome with memories and loneliness. And then there's all the first, and those of you who've had a loss, you know what I'm talking about, the first holidays, the first birthday, the first anniversary, and it stirs up all those emotions again. One widower told his pastor that it wasn't the first holiday season that was really tough for him. It was the second year. He said his wife died near Thanksgiving, so he was geared up for that Christmas to make it the best that he could for his children's sake. And he said he actually did pretty good, but he said when the second Christmas came around, he was not prepared for the emotion that came. And it was tougher the second Christmas than the first. The final stage of grief is returning to life. Slowly, the grieving person returns to participating and actually enjoying the routines of life. Now, obviously, life is not the same. Things are different. But life does resume, and the sun shines again, and there is joy that can be experienced. Most counselors agree that a grief can last for a person of one to two years to cycle through all those emotions when you've lost someone who's really close to you. And that's one of the reasons I always advise grieving people, do not make any major life decisions in the first month after the death of a loved one because you're making really important decisions when you're not at your best. And that's always a recipe for disaster. I especially get concerned when I see people entering serious romantic relationships just weeks or months after the loss of a spouse. And I got to say, it's primarily men who do this. I can't tell you the number of guys who've lost their wife after 40 and 50 years of marriage or longer, and the next thing you know, they pop up with someone else and they're talking about getting married. I have rarely seen those marriages work out, and they often come to very messy, painful endings. Danger, Will Robinson. I know I dated myself a little bit on that one. After Job's wife spoke angrily out of her own grief, Job had some friends who showed up to comfort him. Job chapter 2, verse 11 reads, When Job's three friends, Eliaphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, and Dadgum the Termite, heard about... <laughs> I, I, the last one, I just make sure you're awake, okay? <laughs> Dadgum the Termite's in the book of Numbers, not in this book. <laughs> I, and I made that up too. He, after they heard about all the troubles that had come upon him... They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. Man, how bad did he look? 
And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, let me say this. These guys did some things right. They, they, they cared enough to come. People often worry when someone dies. I, I don't know what to say. I, I feel so awkward when I go to a funeral home. I don't like to go to places like that. But the very worst thing we can do is when a person is experiencing grief, especially if you're close to them, is to do nothing. We need to be there. Job's friends came and they hurt with him and they sat in silence. They, they weren't so superficial as to think that they could make it all better with their words. At least initially they didn't. I had a wonderful wise lady named Doris Florence. Doris was a member of the church I served in Kentucky. And she came to a funeral that I did one time again for an infant. Another tragedy. And she said to me afterwards, John, if words can help... You certainly said some comforting things. If words can help, but sometimes they can't. An anonymous writer penned this verse that's called the friend that just stands by. When troubles come, your soul to try. You love the friend who just stands by. Perhaps there's nothing she can do. The thing is strictly up to you. For there are troubles all your own and paths the soul must tread alone. Times when love can't smooth the road nor friendship lift the heavy load. But just to feel you have a friend who will stand by until the end, whose sympathy through all endures, whose warm hand clasp is always yours. It helps somehow to pull you through, although there's nothing she can do. And so with fervent heart we cry, God bless the friend who just stands by. And Job's three friends came for a whole week, and they just stood by him. And one psychiatrist analyzing this text said if they had just left it at that, they would have gone down in history as some of the finest grief counselors ever. But then they began to talk and talk, and talk some more. Most of the book of Job is a dialogue between Job and these friends who are joined by another friend later on. You've heard the expression, with friends like you, who needs enemies? I think that was based on Job's friends. Job's friends gave him their spin on why he is experiencing such agony and misery. And basically, here's what they said, Job, this is your fault. They say things like, Job, you surely have some unconfessed sin in your life. Surely God would not punish you or anyone like this if you weren't some kind of terrible sinner. So, buddy, do yourself a favor and just fess up. Get it out, friend, and it'll get better for you. That is lousy counsel to someone who's experiencing intense suffering. One of my heroes in ministry is a man named Bob Russell. I got some, uh, an opportunity this past week to spend some time with Bob. He was at the conference that I was at and had a chance to have a private conversation with him. And Bob once interviewed several people who had experienced intense grief. And he asked them this question, what can other people do to help someone who is grieving? And they compiled their responses in a do and don't format. And so we put those in your notes. Here's what they said. Don't avoid the person who mourns. They need you. Don't worry about the right thing to say. Just be there. Probably best if you didn't say anything. Number three, don't treat the survivor differently. For example, if you would have invited the couple to a party, then invite the widow or widower 
to the party. Do understand the grieving process goes on for a long time. Six months later, when others have gone on with their lives, you ask them how they're doing, they may say, fine. But please be sensitive to the fact that they really aren't fine yet. On the other hand, don't think it necessary to bring it up every time you see them. No, how are you really doing? Sometimes that's appreciated. Sometimes that's annoying. Don't say, I know exactly how you feel. Even if you've been through a similar loss, different cases elicit different feelings and different reactions from different people. Do allow for recovery. The survivor is not always going to feel badly. Let them be happy when they're happy. Don't demand that they wear your mood. Understand their emotions are going to fluctuate. Do be willing to reminisce. You know, sometimes people just want to talk about the loved one who's died. Don't change the subject. Let them talk. Let them laugh. Let them cry. They just want to appreciate who they were over again, and they want to know you appreciated them. Don't push yourself on someone if you weren't close before. That just makes people feel awkward. Do be personal. The best words of comfort are to say something nice about the person who died. Don't say, well, she was old and in bad shape. It was a blessing. That's comforting, isn't it? Do say, you know, your mother was really special. Let me tell you about the time she did this for me. Do keep your sense of humor. Don't be flippant. Don't be silly. But at the same time, the Bible says a merry heart does good like medicine. I learned a long time ago, sometimes there's nothing more healing than laughter at a funeral. Do remember the time you're needed most is not immediately. Everybody comes immediately. It's six to eight weeks later when everyone else has returned to their life and when routines have set in again for them is when someone is needed most. Well, it may surprise you to see how Job responded to his grief and losses. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, the patience of Job. And Job did have an amazing sense of endurance during these dark days in his life. He said to his wife, shall we, shall, shall we receive good from the hand of God and not evil? Another time he famously said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Another time he said words that we love to sing. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job had a deep and mature faith, but you can't help but observe something else about Job that I've observed about many people who are experiencing dark periods in their lives, and it's this. One day you can be full of faith. The next day you can be full of doubts. One day you're singing, God is good all the time, and the next day you're shouting, how could God do this to me? I want to quickly read you a few passages from Job, and these are passages that if you're not familiar with them, you might be surprised at the level of anger and bitterness and frustration that spews out of Job's mouth. For example, in Job chapter 3, verse 1, he opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. Cursed is the day I was born. In Job 6.2, he said, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery could be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. In Job 6.14, he grumbled against his friends. He said, A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams. In Job 10.1, he blamed God. He said, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out of the, in a, of the bitterness 
of my soul. In Job 23, 2, he says, even today, my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. Job is saying here, God, I need you to explain why this is happening to me. Now, this is the same guy who earlier in the book said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Now he says, I'm bitter. I got a raw deal and I want to know why. The point is this, you go through fluctuating emotions in grief, even though you believe. Jesus stood in front of the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and he wept. Even though he knew he was going to raise him from the grave, the Bible says he groaned in his spirit. The Bible does not say it's wrong to grieve with all the accompanying emotions and cycles that go along with it. The Bible says we don't grieve like those who have no hope because we know the power of the resurrection. So Job went through vacillating emotions, and he pleaded with God, please explain this to me. After a prolonged period, God did indeed come to Job, and he gave him some new insights about how life works. And you know what? God never gave Job a detailed explanation of why bad things happen to good people. And if you're looking for an explanation for unexplainable sufferings in the book of Job or really anywhere else in the Bible, you're not going to find it. What God does is simply remind Job of who is in charge in the universe. In Job 38, God begins to speak to Job, and he starts by saying these words, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. And he goes on to say things like this. Do you know the dimensions of the earth and who did the surveying? Can you explain where the east wind comes from, Job? Can you tell the ocean waves you go this far and no farther? Can you explain how an eagle builds his nest on the side of a cliff? Can you set, tell me how a fish can swim? Well, can you, Job? Can you? In other words, God says to Job, Job, buddy, I know you're hurting, but let's don't forget who's in charge around here. You're the creature. I'm the creator. It's not your task to understand everything. It's your task to trust me in everything. In Job chapter 40, verses 3 and 4, we read, Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. A loose translation, Job says, I'll shut up now. <laughs> Sorry I asked. In Job chapter 42, we read, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job finally worked his way through the whole cycle of grief and came to the point of acceptance, even though he couldn't explain it. He trusted and then the book of Job ends with a statement of how God, in his mercy, wildly blessed Job even more than he previously had. We read that Job originally had 7,000 sheep. The Bible says God gave him 14,000. He lost 3,000 camels. God gave him 6,000. He had 500 yoke of oxen. God gave him 1,000. He previously had 500 donkeys. God gave him 1,000. He lost 10 children. God gave him 10 more. You say, why didn't God give him 20 more children? Remember, he was blessing him. (laughs) 
I think the real reason why God didn't give Job 20 children was that Job hadn't lost the first 10. They were waiting for him. Vance Havner was a creative but somewhat crusty old preacher from the middle part of the 20th century. His wife, Sarah, preceded him in death, and people at her funeral kept walking by Pastor Havner and saying, we're so sorry you lost Sarah. We're so sorry you lost your wife. And finally, he snapped back at someone, I haven't lost Sarah. I know where she is. You haven't lost something when you know where it is, he said. The book of Job ends with these two verses. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man full of years. Before we leave today, I want to I recall three triumphant truths that I think can help for bring healing for the wound of grief. Number one, grief is inevitable, expected. Grief is inevitable, expected. The Bible says there's a time to mourn, there's a time to die, there's a time to weep. Do not naively go through life thinking it will never happen to me or it won't happen to me now. If you live very long, there's going to be a time when mom and dad die or a brother or sister or a spouse or maybe even a child. I don't think we should be morbid about that. I don't think we should use that in some manipulative manner, as some people do. Oh, this might be our last Christmas together. I've had two brothers who died of heart attacks before 60. You never know. But on the other hand, don't be naive about death either. Be realistic and understand you're someday going to face that. My, my, my dad is, is 86, and he was one of 10 siblings, and five of the siblings are... Uh, dead now, and only four are left, and his youngest brother named Otha, my uncle Othi, we called him, um, just died last year. And my, my dad and uncle Othi in particular had this little thing before they would leave the house. They did this for years. My uncle Othi would say to my dad, John, one of us is going to bury the rest of us. My dad would say, yeah, that's right, Othi, that's right. And it sounded kind of morbid, you know, and it, it kind of is, honestly. But that was just their way of reminding each other, you know what? We're not going to be here. And one of us is going to outlive the rest of us. And I'm beginning to think it's going to be my dad. Grief is inevitable. Expect it. Number two, faith is essential. Hold on to it. The one phrase that I hear again and again from grieving people is this, I don't know how people go through this without the Lord. I don't know how people go through this without Christian friends. I don't know how people go through this without a church to support them. Yes, I'm hurting, but I'm so comforted by the fact that they're in a better place and I'm going to see them again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter says grief and trials are for a little while. They're temporary. But there is coming a day when God will wipe all tears from grieving eyes, and this old order of sorrow will pass away. Friends, faith is essential. Hold on to it. If you've ever been to a Ripley's Believe It or Not, you, you've probably seen the famous epitaphs 
from tombstones that they collect from all over the world. Things like this one. Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, stepped on the gas instead of the brake. Here lies Les Moore, took four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. One of my favorite comes from an Alabama cemetery, and it says, here lies Solomon Pease. Pease is not here, only the pod. Pease shelled out and went home to God. (laughs) Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And friends, when the devastation of death hits someone you love, hold on to the faith that to live is Christ, to die is gain, that to be absent from the body means we've just shelled out of the pod and they've gone home to God. Thirdly, life is precious and fleeting. Live it. Live it. There is a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance again. There comes a time when you need to be able to go on with life. Things may never be exactly the same again, but listen to me. It is no tribute to the one who died, and it's certainly no demonstration of your faith to go for years and years wallowing in self-pity, talking to tombstones, and withdrawing from people. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the greatest chapters on the resurrection that's ever been written. And the last verse of this great declaration of the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and thus of all those who believe in him is this statement. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words... Paul is writing, let these great truths that I've just written to you about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the body, let these great truths help you to live every moment to the fullest that you believe to be in the will of God. Enjoy life knowing that death does not have the last word, but Jesus Christ does. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be able to come today. And I know for some here who've just experienced a loss that is very fresh, they still feel the sting of death. There's still a rawness emotionally. And so, Father, I pray for them especially. I pray for you to comfort them. I pray that your words that we've looked at the truths that we've looked at, I pray they will be like medicine. I pray they will be a a soothing tonic to their troubled spirit right now. Father, thank you that there is a fraternity of bereavement that all of us experience. Sympathy makes brothers and sisters of humanity. Father, I just pray that you'll You'll help us to understand the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is right here when we talk about Jesus has the last word. The grave does not. Death does not. Jesus has the last word. He conquered the grave. He overcame death. Sin 
where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so we thank you for that. And Father, I pray that you would help those of us who do follow Jesus. I pray that we would live every moment to the fullest that we believe to be in your will because this is the only time we have right now. Not promised what's coming tomorrow. There's nothing we're going to do about the past. Right now, we have this moment. And I pray, Father, that you would just keep us in that precious present, that we would know that we want to live fully because we have opportunity to do it now. We have opportunity to do it today, to live fully every moment that we believe to be in your will. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to live life while we can because it's temporary and it's fleeting. So, Father, I just pray that you'll help us to let things be well with our soul because of Jesus and our trust in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and we agreed and said. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.